Hi everyone, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Walton College of Business, and this is the Business Integrity School Podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, and most importantly, in your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of the Business Integrity School. We are in season six, and as you know, we are talking about all things related to speaking up and getting your voice heard. And we are really fortunate to have with us today uh, somebody who also was able to visit us on campus this semester, Sharon Watkins. Hi, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Cindy. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So Sharon um, is most famously known as being the Enron whistleblower and was gracious enough to come to campus and, and share that entire sort of experience with us. We're going to dive into all that. But before we do, let me just tell you real real quick, um, and then I'll have Sharon set the stage. Sharon was a former VP um, at Enron, just as a reminder. She tried to alert then-CEO Ken Lay to accounting irregularities um, that might implode in a wave of accounting scandals. We all now know that it did. Um, She testified before Congress from House and Senate that were both investigating uh, Enron's demise. Sharon was one of Time Magazine's 2002 People of the Year, and I love the phrase they used. It was for people who did right just by doing their jobs rightly, which is an interesting way to end up as Time Person of the Year. So Sharon now lectures uh, around the globe on leadership and ethics and is also a professor of practice at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Love to have you here with us today, Sharon. But before we dive in with the questions, for those who didn't get to hear you speak on campus or may not be as intimately familiar as you are and that I am with the Enron situation, just give us a real quick overview and recap. First off, I started my um, career as an auditor at Arthur Anderson. Um, worked for eight years at Arthur Anderson, um, went to another company for a while, but and moved to New York City for a while. But when I wanted to get back to Houston, Texas, where I was from, you know, I'm, I'm a fifth or sixth or seventh generation Texan. Um, in Houston, Texas, in 1993, Enron Corporation was the place to work. It was really Um, an amazing company already known for innovation and entrepreneurial um, moves. It had started its life as a stodgy natural gas pipeline company Mm -hmm. with pipelines running from California through Texas, Louisiana to Florida, up through Chicago to Canada. Um, You know, we move natural gas. We were known as a natural gas company, but we had hired Jeff Skilling from McKinsey and he had really opened up um, the gas trading world when, mm-hmm. when gas was really just a barely traded commodity on the NYMEX. And Enron was morphing itself into what we, we called the Wall Street of energy, you know, where we were trading electricity, natural gas, oil, um, and even weather derivatives. We were really a, an amazing commodity shop. And I felt myself very lucky and blessed to land a job there in 1993. And in fact, Enron paid for my move back from New York to Houston. Um, Enron grew to be the seventh largest company in America based off total revenue. 
Right. And it was very innovative. Fortune magazine named us the most innovative company in America for six or seven years in a row. Yeah. Just because we kept, you know, changing our business lines, morphing into something new. But, you know, sort of, mm, have you heard that saying that the dark side of charisma is narcissism? Yes. You know, where that charismatic leader is really maybe a malignant narcissistic leader. Right. Well, I think when you push a company to just innovate, 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 the dark side of innovation, you know, is fraud. At some point, you're just kind of making up your results because you just can't keep innovating. There's a saying that trees don't grow to the sky. You know, they're just yeah. going to grow so far yeah. and, and you get into trouble. And Enron got into trouble and in fact, imploded, like went into bankruptcy because collapsed in like 24 days, mm-hmm. you know, 20,000, over 20,000 employees lost their jobs and their health insurance. Oh, it was, and- you know, people kind of forget that the Enron collapse happened right on the heels of 9-11. Right. And that was really, you know, this huge attack on the whole country where everyone just felt shaky and uncertain. But I had stumbled across accounting fraud in the summer of 2001 and was kind of hair on fire. What do I do about this? Trying to figure things out. When Jeff Skilling, our CEO, shocked everyone and quit. Um, And mind you, he had been chief operating officer since the beginning of 1997. Then the beginning of 2001, he gets the job he's been wanting for so long, CEO. Mm -hmm. And eight months later, he's, he's quitting, you know, in August of 2001. So I felt compelled to speak to Kinlay, warn him about this accounting fraud. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the middle of me watching the company not address the issues or the problems, 9-11 happened. So the fall of 2001 was a horrible time because I didn't see company leaders doing the right thing. And then we have the country being attacked. Yeah, it was brutal. That was a hard time. That Mm -hmm. was a really, really hard time. So if you, if you could rewind the clock, (laughs) would you have done anything differently when you tried to talk to Kinley about the accounting problems? Well, certainly I, I should have tried to see if more people would go with me. I was really kind of naive. You know, I've sometimes used the Titanic as my um, example that, you know, we've hit the iceberg and too much water's pouring in and we're going to sink. So you're going to warn the captain and you kind of figure he's going to go and take a look at the bottom of the ship and realize, uh uh-oh, sound the alarm bells, man the lifeboats, you know, save business lines, hoard cash, form a crisis management team, looks like trouble is ahead. Yeah. And um, so I really had at my core, like I am walking in describing this accounting fraud and, and it's pretty obvious. I, I'm primarily asking one question that the Raptor structures that I was reporting on were supposedly outside entities that owed Enron about $700 million. You know, he just needed to find out how the Raptors were going to pay Enron back. Right. You know, who, who lost that 700 million? It needs to be an outside party, outside creditors, outside equity owners. Where'd that 700 million, where's it going to come from? And if it was going to come from the Raptors accessing a pile of Enron stock, selling it in the marketplace and paying Enron back, 
I actually wrote in one of my memos that this is a fact pattern the SEC probably wouldn't find too agreeable. Um, So that was my, we've hit an iceberg, too much water is poured in, you've got to address this. And Kinlay was able to dismiss me as kind of one lone voice Mm -hmm. that was wrong. Mm -hmm. That if I'd been able to get some um, managing directors to go with me, some other people that were actually feeding me information, had I pushed them hard to go with me, mm-hmm. it, it might yeah. have been a different outcome. Take a partner sometimes, especially mm-hmm. I think would be an, another way to say it. If you're, you know, young in your career, or a little naive, like you described, that's certainly one of the strategies that, you know, Mary Gentile in her book, Giving Voice to Values, you know, talks about is as you think through how you're going to do it. it. It isn't. And I think a lot of people think it's always just speaking truth to power, but there, but there are other ways. Um, you know, and, and it's good sometimes to explore those. So that's interesting. But you did also write a memo, which ended up being pretty crucial. Can you walk us through a little bit of the process that led you to decide to actually write the memo in addition to talking to him? Well, it was a very knee-jerk reaction. Um, Jeff Skilling, um, his resignation was announced on a Tuesday afternoon after yeah. the markets had closed. Uh-huh. And with that announcement, Ken Lay said, I'll step back in as CEO. You know, I am chairman of the board right now. I'll step back in um, and we'll have an all employee meeting on Thursday. You know, I'm sure all of you want to hear what our plans are, who might be the next CEO in waiting. Um, And then as was usual, when we had these all employee meetings, there were several ways that employees could submit questions, you know, an email address, um, as well as a physical Dropbox. Mm. Now, almost every news outlet says I sent an anonymous email to Ken Lay, um, but I didn't do that. I typed a one pager and actually warned my assistant, you know, go down to the floor where this Dropbox is, but don't visit with anybody, you know, kind of get there, stick it in the, in the box and, and leave. Um, Because I was very concerned about how inflammatory I was in that anonymous one page. I talked about the Raptors. I talked about Condor, that we might implode in a wave of accounting scandals. You know, what what are y'all going to do about the accounting problems we have? And I went early to the all-employee meeting, heard all the right things. You know, Ken Lay saying, you know, we need to get back to our core values, respect, integrity, communication, excellence. Um, asking employees if anyone's truly troubled about anything, please come forward to me or, you know, Cindy Olson, who was the head of HR. So I decided that day to go identify myself to Cindy Olson. Her first reaction was, Kinlay gravitates towards good news. He gravitates away from bad news. He probably asked the CFO, Andy Fastow, and the chief accounting officer, Rick Causey, what they thought about your first letter, and they probably assured him, you know, that your concerns Mm. were all wrong, but he does better in person, you know, so she got me on his calendar for the following Wednesday. Got it. And in that uh, week-long period from Thursday to Wednesday, I probably had a dozen people giving me more information. Mm -hmm. And so when I did finally meet with Ken Lay, I had seven pages of my own memos or analysis about the issue. But I had sort of evidence, an Excel spreadsheet that proved the fraud, as well as a PowerPoint that had been given to the board of directors 
that I thought proved the, the problems as well. So I mm. felt like I was also handing him evidence. I believe that you also spotted something much smaller. Um, I didn't run several years prior to this, like the big problem. Tell us about a little bit about that. How did you deal with that one? What happened when you tried to raise it as just the, the smaller issue? What happened then? The seeds of Enron's fraud started in 1996. And at that time, and also through my whole eight years at Enron, you could not miss your earnings targets. You know, yeah. the, I'm, I'm sure many of your students have, that have studied fraud issues have heard that thing about fraud as a three-pronged um, pressure point. The first condition for fraud is pressure to achieve something. Right. It might be personal embezzlement, you know, financial troubles personally, where you're stealing from your company. Yeah. Um, or in Enron's case, it was you had to meet earnings, had to meet earnings. You know, that was the pressure point. If you were the head of a business unit or a division, you could not miss your earnings. The second um, critical element is an opportunity to cheat right. or game the system. Yep. And then the third is the rationalization that what you're doing is okay. Our division looked like we were going to miss earnings. And there was this all hands on deck meeting about what to do. And they decided that Enron had equity investments in energy companies or tech companies that were not strategic to Enron. Like it, when Enron innovated half the time by buying a company in that, in that space, you know, or putting an equity investment in a company in that space that they were trying to grow into. Mm -hmm. So Enron had a number of these assets. If they were um, held for sale, then we could call them non-strategic and write them up to a market value. And that's where they, they filled the earnings hole in 96. And, you know, as a CPA accountant, even though I was in the finance department at that point, I kind of made holy hell about it because, you know, you, you just can't write up hard assets to a deemed market value. Yeah. Um, mark to market is for highly liquid assets where the uh, ready market exists and a price is easily determined. Mm -hmm. Then otherwise, the market value is really what two arm's length people will trade at. Yeah. And so for really hard assets, hard to sell, you, you don't have a market price for that. You don't have liquidity. You don't have a price. So Enron was actually marking to a model. And that's what they called it wasn't marked to market. It was marked to a model that is mm -hmm. estimating the market value. But that's the seeds of Enron's fraud, because mm -hmm. as they wrote up assets like that, right, investments like that, yep. then, hey, sometimes the market turns south on you. Oil mm -hmm. prices drop, gas prices drop, some other problem happens, and prices go down. Enron was branching into broadband and tech and had invested in some tech companies. And if you remember, 99, 2000, there was a tech bust. Yeah. And a lot of those tech companies declined in value. Well, Enron didn't want to write those mark to the model uh, assets down. down. Yeah. And they just couldn't mm -hmm. jerry rig those models anymore to avoid mm -hmm. a loss. Mm -hmm. And that's when they created the Raptor structures mm -hmm. to mask the losses. So I usually point to the fact that if someone had been able to stop Right. Enron adopting that practice in 96, yeah. the company might still be alive today. 
Oh, I think I think we mentioned this um, to some of the students, but there's a um, a broadcast done by a Long Island NPR station, okay. and it it's called um, Ask Why Enron, and they do a reenactment of exactly that. Where mm. I met, I ran into some Arthur Anderson partners in the hallway. I complained about this mark to yeah. the model, like don't let us do this. They went and told the chief accounting officer hey, not everyone's on the same page. You know, Sharon just complained to us. Andy Fastow, you know, my boss at the time, chewed me out. Let me know that this was a career limiting move. You know, I was not in the accounting department. I was in his finance department, you know, keep my mouth shut. Yeah. And they reenacted that in their um, broadcast. It's kind of, um, (laughs) it was, it's well done. So you got shut down then when you tried mm-hmm. to raise an issue. So how, reflecting back on it now, how did you find the courage then to raise your voice, you know, five years later in 2001? You know, almost everyone thinks that when you are faced with a situation like that, that you, then oh. you would just quit and leave the company. Yeah. And I, I like to mention that that didn't even cross my mind because I had been hired as a director at Enron Mm -hmm. in late 93. This was third quarter of 96. And I had not yet been promoted to vice president. Mm -hmm. And remember, Enron is the place to work in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I never once thought about leaving the company because I thought, well, everyone's going to be thinking I got pushed out or I didn't get promoted. I'm not going to get promoted. Like my own ego got in the way that no way I'm staying at Enron till I make vice president. But what I did do is transfer out of Andy's department. I moved Mm -hmm. to Enron International Mm -hmm. and I was at Enron International for three blissful years. That was a well-run company, just like the pipeline division Mm -hmm. was Mm well-run. And I kind of forgot about the accounting shenanigans. Um, But it was helpful that I'd seen that in 96, because then when I ran across the big fraud in the summer of 2001, uh, I could believe that that had happened, right. you know, cause I saw how Arthur Anderson shut me down, that people shut me down on the thing that the seed that became the, the bigger fraud. <laughs> you were a VP. So you'd made that and you still believed that Ken Lay really wanted that information, right? And was going to do something about it. Well, I did think that Jeff Skilling's resignation kind of added credibility to what I was telling him Uh because Jeff Skilling had no good reason for why he was quitting. You know, so it's kind of like, hey, I might perhaps have the reason. Yeah. This fraud is going to blow up on us. Right. And it's very interesting. Um, I've gotten to know Cynthia Cooper from WorldCom. Yes. And she was sniffing out accounting fraud at WorldCom and the CFO, Scott Sullivan, tried to get her off the, the trail. You know, here are the things I want you working on, not, you know, top priority. And supposedly he was going to try to clean up his mess, um, hide it in a goodwill write down that the market was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Skilling was planning on cleaning up his Enron mess um, through broadband taking off, you know, mm. or you know, other, other things. But in the summer of 2001, California trading profits had declined. The tech sector was in free fall. So he was looking at no place to hide and run and correct 
his accounting missteps. And so I think he was getting out of town while the getting was good. Yeah. Um, but that's where I thought, mm, you know, Ken Lay might, right. might listen because right. why is Jeff Skilling quitting? A lot has happened in the intervening 21 years to create some protections in um, uh, some federal laws for um, um, protection of whistleblowers. And frankly, you had a lot to do with that, starting with Sarbanes-Oxley, because when they were planning on even passing that law after the collapse of Enron and WorldCom, there weren't protections for whistleblowers that were there at the beginning, to my understanding. But pretty quickly, they figured out, oh my gosh, we need to add that. And so they did. But there was still a loophole in there in, in Sarbanes-Oxley. So, so tell us a little bit about that. What, what loophole that existed when Sarbanes-Oxley did get passed for protection for whistleblowers? And then what happened to fill that? You know, Congress was all very alarmed that a company the size of Enron could declare bankruptcy after, you know, having no bumps in the road. You know, like everything's looking great. And then poof, you know, you're you're declaring right. bankruptcy. So shareholders lost over $60 billion. So Congress was very alarmed. Yes. And, and, you know, you want a stable Wall Street, you want a stable investing community, how could this happen? And so there were all these different congressional investigations. And um, Congress found my materials that I gave to Ken Lay in a box of subpoenaed documents, you know, Enron had actually sent them to Congress, but kind of flooding Congress with yeah. with roomfuls of documents. So I ended up being subpoenaed to testify in front of Congress. And it, this was still the most shocking thing, Cindy. This shows how naive I was. So I had met with Ken Lay on August 22nd of 2001. So Congress says, hey, flip to this binder tab. You know, they're asking me questions about various documents. It was a memo from Vincent and Elkins, Enron's outside law firm, back to Enron Corporation, and it said, per your request, here are the potential consequences to discharging employees who raise accounting concerns. And it was dated August 24th, 2001. So I must have left Ken Lay's office and, you know, he picks up the phone, mm -hmm. you know, how can we, can we fire her? You know, can we dump her on the street? Right. And I've since learned at whistleblower conferences, that the plan is to really smear you, that you're a nut job or a disgruntled employee. So maybe the press doesn't listen to you or the SEC doesn't listen to you because they're really doing a campaign to make you seem like a nut job. Right. Um, but basically the memo from Vincent and Elkins said, she's got no legal protections. You know, you could fire her, but let's say she brings a wrongful termination suit. The Raptor structure she's concerned with might probably will be part of the discovery process and it wouldn't look so good under the white hot spotlight of a courtroom. So the irony there is I think Ken Lay kind of had his answer that I was right by, by the yeah. comments the lawyers made, right. but that did make Congress concerned that there are no whistleblower protections. So the Sorbonne-Oxley Act covered internal controls, it yeah. covered, you know, the expertise and the independence you needed on boards of directors. Right. It covered so much, but they threw in this whistleblower provision that said you can't retaliate against whistleblowers, those that go outside or that goes that, that report internally, like I had. You can't fire them, you can't demote them, yeah. you know, various things, no retaliation. Yeah. 
Um, but the application of that law got shoved into the Department of Labor and mm-hmm. under OSHA, you know, the mm-hmm. Occupational Safety and, and Health mm-hmm. um, Act. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of Labor at that time was Elaine Chow. Um, she's the wife of Senator Mitch McConnell. And she fell victim to some corporate lobbying efforts where they told her that the law applied only to employees of the publicly traded parent. Mm. And that was just a misapplication. I mean, most frauds happen in operating divisions. Yeah, right. And so that for, there's some statistic that you can look up, but out of like 1,200 retaliation claims that were made by employees right she dismissed over 800 out just right off the bat not even looking at the merits of the claim because the employee worked for a a sub subsidiary of the company not the parent company yeah um so in effect she she killed the protection while Mm. she was secretary of labor wow so then we have to go and uh, and look all the way to Don Frank after the you know financial collapse in 08 and 09 before that loophole got got addressed again. And so so what happened with Don Frank and how did it address that problem? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is you know 2008 was Enron on steroids. You know you had Lehman Brothers collapse, Bear yeah. Stearns collapse, Merrill Lynch had to be bailed out by Bank of America. Um, Bear Stearns, I think, went to some other bank as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so the whole Wall Street collapse, Congress, once again, how did this happen? They actually looked at the rejected SOX complaints where Elaine Chow had rejected these things. Mm -hmm. And they found whistleblowers at Citibank and Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch. And so it's like, wow, maybe this could have been averted because they had actually been retaliated against in 2006 and seven you know, right. prior to the collapse. Right. So great. We tried to do this check and balance to be able to kind of support people speaking truth to power and it didn't work. Yeah. So they strengthened whistleblower protections in that Dodd-Frank Act that was addressing the 2008 collapse. And they put in a 10 to 30% reward program mm-hmm. for whistleblowers that brought information to the SEC that resulted in fines to the company. Mm-hmm. And Congress didn't want it misapplied the way the Department of Labor had done the SOX. So they specified that it's going to be in the, in the Securities and Exchange Commission. Mm-hmm. They're going to have an office of the whistleblower. They're going to have to report to Congress yearly on what's going on. And there was a real push to have whistleblowers stay anonymous, mm-hmm. you know, an ability so that their careers wouldn't be over. They wouldn't be blacklisted. Yeah, right. You know, the, the SEC had to develop methodologies that let whistleblowers stay anonymous. How would your life have been different? Like you personally, do you think if Dodd-Frank had been in existence in the nineties? Well, I I do think, and it's interesting you ask that because I've been on some panels with some current SEC enforcement people and I've said, okay, you know, that 96 mark to the model thing. um, If I had hired a lawyer through Dodd-Frank trying to stay anonymous and reported these tips up to the SEC that Enron was writing up, you know, hard assets, equity mm-hmm. investments. Um, he said, okay, that's September, October of 96. 
we probably would have opened up something formal, probably early 97. So we would have been investigating it in 97. It would be pretty fast timing for us to conclude by early 98, you know, that it would have been a long process. Right. Um, but we would have probably found it wrong, slapped Enron with a fine. Um, let's just say they would have fined them $100 million. Well, $30 million might have gone to my lawyer and then pay me. So, you know, who knows? I might have had $15 million. <laughs> but the most important thing is, I think even in 97, Enron would have gotten off that path. Like the SEC is investigating, they're asking for information. Um, I think Enron would have stopped doing that, you know, corrected that horrible path they were on. Yeah. And that company would probably still be alive today. And you then, you know, what could have been able to continue in your chosen profession. So mm -hmm. you've done a lot of good for those who come after you by bringing a spotlight to these issues. Um, I, I, so we all owe you a debt of gratitude for that, honestly. But, well, you know, I think, you. Sharon, a lot of people still have a hard time speaking up even with these protections that exist on the outside, because they don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. They don't want to, you know, rock the boat and lose their job. They fear that nothing's going to happen anyway. So what advice do you have for young employees or students about to become young employees if they find themselves in that situation? Well, certainly I think it's worth talking amongst your peers Mm -hmm. I do think there's safety in numbers. And when you find more people agree that it's a problem, you know, speak to the people that are right above you. And then hopefully because of Dodd-Frank and, you know, the whistleblowing option for people, um, I do think companies are um, in really implementing much better compliance and reporting um, mechanisms mm -hmm. um, that, that they, they know that, you know, we want to, champion speaking up and, right. and stopping a problem from happening. Yeah. But the other good thing is because of Dodd-Frank, I mean, I would say um, in, in 2002, you know, there were maybe two different groups supporting whistleblowers. One was a not-for-profit, the government accountability group. And the other one was Cone Cone, you know, Stephen Cohn and his law firm. I mean, there were just like two. Uh -huh. Now, if you were to Google whistleblower legal help, you know, there's a dozen firms. And many of them have websites with really good information. You know, what have you found? Where are you? You know, like good questions asking the would-be whistleblower in ways that help them come up with a path, you know, and, and even you know, in, intake, you know, phone us, you know, bounce ideas off of us. Yeah. So yeah. I do think it's a good check and balance, but I also think more firms are really implementing very good yeah. systems now. Yeah. Speak up cultures and championing mm -hmm. it um, so that employees do feel safe. All right, Sharon, thank you so, so much for spending this time with us today. And I know the whole audience really appreciates it. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Cindy. Thanks for your interest in the Enron story. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Business Integrity School. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast by simply searching for the Business Integrity School. Be sure to subscribe and rate us and tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.